Another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives yeah. Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we seek to try to understand and untangle the practice of Mormon plural marriage and see how it relates to both past and present. And I am so, so excited. I've been promising this interview for a while now, but I have the amazing author of the amazing book, The Polygamist Wives Writing Club. I am pleased to bring you Paula Kelly Harleen. Paula, can you say hello? Hello. Yeah, so I've been talking about your book. I got a copy of it actually right after I started the series, and I didn't know what to expect when I first saw the book, but it's just been so amazing and so helpful and right in line with what we're trying to do here at the podcast. So do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself first and how you got interested in the subject to begin with? Sure. In graduate school at the University of Idaho, um, in a 19th century women's lit class, Another student told the professor that he wanted to do a research paper on a polygamous wife. And I was simultaneously horrified because I was sort of embarrassed to tell you the truth that they were going to be talking about a polygamous wife in my class and my graduate class. And, and I think I was the only Mormon in the class, but um, as luck would have it, my professor who was a young a feminist, uh, just from Indiana, I think, um, said, told me a week later that the student had to decide to drop that topic and she thought I should do it. And she kind of mentored me through it and, uh, really encouraged me to do it. And I ended up doing my thesis on an analysis of polygamous wives, autobiographies and diaries, and then subsequently got some grants and helped to write it. And it was a long time in coming. I wrote the whole thing. Uh, one time in 1996 and sent it off to University of Illinois Press and they wanted some extensive editing and I didn't really like it myself. It was really difficult to have all these women's like, well, there are 20, 29 women. It was difficult to follow their lives in the way that I had written it. So I put it away for a while and then just started getting momentum back and came up with a completely different organization that I'm happy with. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I published it with uh, Oxford University Press, and it came out a couple months ago in June. And you're no stranger to Mormon studies. You've been writing and researching history before. I've seen your name in a lot of the BYU uh, print journals, and you've been around for a while researching this stuff. Uh, yes, I had a lot to learn and a lot to read, and... So I've given papers over the years and published, uh, you know, a few things. But my my major goal, um, although <laughs> dropped out of sight at times, but my major goal was really to publish a book. I was initially quite touched by their stories. I knew um, quite early that I wanted to do the stories of obscure women instead of some of the early um, feminists, you know, who were better known, who were Salt Lake leaders. And so I decided to focus in on women who were more obscure, who were not married to any general authorities, who weren't uh, general church leaders themselves. And I also decided early on that I 
found the Joseph Smith period too confusing for me, truthfully, and I wanted to focus on the Western period. I was always interested in Western literature anyway and Western women's studies, and I think there's fascinating stories to uncover still about the women who helped settle the West, and I felt like these polygamous wives were part of that. Yeah, and that, like I said, that's really in line with my whole goal for starting this because... You know, I, I love, love, love Mormon history, but I sometimes get resentful of the way that women are framed in the history. They're always framed as wives of, you know, whoever the prominent men that they're attached to. And growing up, so that's one part of the paradox, but the other part is growing up as a Mormon girl, you're really taught about your, at least in Utah, you're taught about your, these pioneer ancestors, these women, these strong women. And so they are honored. And so for me to see that conflict of knowing that these women had their own lives, even if they weren't big or prominent women, um, and then seeing in Mormon studies that they were only talked about if they were tied to some sort of prominence, I really wanted to sort of reconcile this conflict. And I think you've done a really, really good job of that in your book. It's excellent. Oh, well, thank you. I, 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 when I read the stories myself, I, um, identified with them. And of course, I'm an ordinary person myself. And I just felt like their feelings were so human. And, and yet I felt that they, um, had been overlooked, perhaps even in our effort to make heroes or heroines, heroes, if you want, out of, uh, the women. Yeah. You know? And I, you know, I noticed, I, I want to ask you about some of your methods and, and why you chose the women you did in a, in a minute. But I have to say, like, what has been really, really helpful for this series is your introduction and the way that you frame this. You talk about in this book that there's this theme that you notice. And if it's, if there's one theme running throughout this sort of ribbon throughout all of these stories is that polygamy was hard and nearly killed them, but they believed it was from God. Right. Some of them said that they believed it was from God. Yes. But yes, it was a religious practice. They believed it was a religious practice tied to their religion. Yeah. And um, I just I love how uh, you really get into their stories. I mean, we're, we're going to talk. I'm going to ask you about a few of them. But I just again, I'm sorry to be gushing so much, but I just really appreciate the the goal of this project, because I think that this is a book that every Mormon woman should read, because I think it helps not only understand our our past but who we are today and you've done a really good job and you can you write it with affection and um it's just fantastic so let's get into the book tell me why you chose these women i um got some help from Catherine danes at one point who is um professor at byu who's uh just like the guru of um, polygamous studies um she helped me gather some that i was missing um i was looking for all of the women who married between like 1850 and 1890 or, or 1847. I mean, you know, from the time that the Mormons came West until the practice was officially stopped in 1890. I also was looking for women, as I said, who were not married to general authorities or who were not general leaders themselves. And also I eliminated women who, um, did not flee to Canada and Mexico during the prosecution days um, when the, from the federal government um, and their willingness to write about their relationships when they're mar- in their marriages, although some of them only m- mentioned it briefly. So I looked for any 
autobiographies or diaries that were written by the women themselves who fell into those categories. And I came up with um, 29. And that was in 1996. I have a little caveat. You know, I fit it, I kind of uh, identified my sources then, which is a while back. And I know that there are some other ones that have come out, but I wanted to work with that bulk from that point forward. Well, I think it's great. And I wanted to ask you what you thought. So growing up, the sort of stereotype, the trope that I was told about polygamy was it was for the widows. You know, it was for the, there were more women than men. And in fact, I just, I just told the story on the podcast. I went recently and toured the beehive house and the sweet dear sister missionaries were telling me the same thing. Well, there are more women than there are men. And, you know, more men died with, on the planes, which is true actually. And so, you know, we kind of make excuses for this practice that was actually more doctrinally based at the time. And in your book, you talk about a lot of, a lot, for a lot of these women, polygamy was actually a very practical thing. So it did fall under those categories. But, um, tell, I, I would be curious to some of the things that, sh- that you learned that surprised you that changed your sort of earlier perceptions of polygamy versus when you kind of dug in and did the research. Well, yeah, I, I would say it's a combination of, uh, practical and religious reasons and the, there were some, there were, especially initially in the 1850s, slightly more women than men. And Brigham Young even said that he was happy to see the Hancart sisters, some of those sisters who had come by themselves, um, finding families and finding husbands. And some of them were integrated into polygamous families. Um, so I guess in a practical way, even though it was a trope that we hear, you know, that that's the reason they did it or maybe an excuse for doing it, I think that did happen in some cases. And there are stories of, of several women who came as uh, single women and joined families. And, um, and that was a way to immediately have a social place and, um, and also, like, I'm, I'm thinking of Martha Haywood, who there were a couple of them actually who married their handcart, um, uh, or handcart or wagon captains. They, um, went, um, they were pursued by them when they got back. Um, Martha Haywood was 39 years old and her husband was a little bit younger than she was. And he already had a wife he really liked really well. So I think she was probably mostly in, integrated because, um, uh, you know, because she was alone. Although Catherine Danes has recently shown that um, there were women who, that women who married into polygamy usually married faster than women who didn't. And that they did not, it didn't necessarily mean that they didn't have other opportunities for monogamous marriage. So yes, it was kind of a culture where, especially in the 1850s, it was a new thing. There did seem to be some more women. It was a way to really um, show that you were a devout Mormon, that you were behind Brigham Young, maybe. And I think also it was a way to settle the West more fully because there are quite a few times, I mean, most of the women lived on their own rather than in families with other wives and with their husband. And so some of them went to outlying settlements and it was a way not only for their their families to get more land, but for the church to get more land and settle more of the West. So 
In some ways, I think it was a practical solution to an immediate problem, um, trying to take care of everybody. And in the late 1850s, there was, um, there was famine. It was really hard time and they really pushed polygamy hard during that time. But then there were problems from that because there were a lot of divorces afterwards. Um, as far as the religious reasoning, I have maybe come to believe that when it, it says in the Book of Mormon in Jacob 2 that, uh, that polygamy is, as, uh, not approved in the eyes of God except in, um, those rare instances where he wants to raise up righteous seed and he'll let us know if he wants to do that. I consider that 40 year period or so, 50 year period, um, possibly one of those exceptions where, um, it was, it was a time to build up their population and not that polygamous wives necessarily had so many more babies, although they did, but it was also a way to root themselves, um, as a new religion and to keep outsiders away because they were kind of strange and to isolate themselves and to just kind of get themselves off the ground. And maybe they could have stopped it a little sooner if, you know, if they needed to do it at all, because um, the later period and, you know, the 1880s was very, very difficult. So anyway, that's a long answer, but no, that's great. <laughs> You know, another thing that your book helped me crystallize in cha changing my perceptions of what I thought this practice was about is I think growing up um, with the general societal expectations that we have of men and women that, you know, men are overly sexual and women are not, I think in the back of my mind, I don't think it was ever explicitly told to me, but I had always assumed that polygamy was there because men were overly sexual and women were not. And of course, when you read some of the prominent Mormon men practicing it, they're making sort of doctrinally based justifications along those lines that this is, you know, what men do and this is how God wants it. And so I, I think I always kind of had that misconception that polygamy was all about, you know, the lusts of men, even if it wasn't explicitly said. And your book really helps really parse that out a little bit. It shows that this that it was not about sex and it was not about lust. It was about all those reasons that you, that you said, but you also show how it was a, sometimes a real challenge and a burden for the men involved as well. Yes. Um, you know, once again, I don't know as much about Joseph Smith period of polygamy, but I would say in the Western period that in many cases, at least in the women I've studied, these were, these were husbands who became bishops in the church and they seemed to be pressured, just assumed, expected that they would become polygamous husbands because they were then leaders in the church. And there are cases where they're you know, their first wives just kind of seem to, you know, throw up their hands like, you know, there's nothing to be done about it. They expect him to become a polygamous husband. And so, although it nearly killed me, you know, to use that quote that, um, you know, a girl was working in our house at the time and it just, you know, he married her. <laughs> I mean, often these, the stories that I have, they did not marry a whole bunch of wives. Oftentimes they would just marry 
a second wife. And you, you got to wonder if from the men's point of view, and I haven't studied the men's um, diaries and autobiographies, but I, I kind of feel like in some cases they must have felt pressured to do it um, just to show that they were believing members of the church to, you know, obey their leaders. But of course that's a generalization because there were some men who seemed to be sexually motivated. <laughs> true, true, absolutely. And that's, you know, that's what I like to point out is everybody in the in these stories are on a spectrum, right? And that goes for men and women. And your book illustrates that uh, you have that great story, in it, and I'm forgetting her name right now, about the woman who was not interested in her husband. She really loved her sister wives. And so it really worked for her in a way that that it it wouldn't appeal to me necessarily. So I like that you include sort of the diversity in these motivations. And I'm looking at this chapter right now and you're talking, um, you have one man, um, his name is Samuel and he is married to Ruth and Samuel really struggles to provide this. This practice is a real burden for him. And he finds himself having to like, I think bring her back to her parents if I'm remembering right, because they run out of money. Mm-hmm. Um, now that that's kind of an interesting case because he, he married. He was a bachelor when he married his brother's widow, and Ruth knew him because he had been a missionary to their family in New Jersey many years prior, and so they met up again, and they just seemed to have this chemistry between them. His first wife, you know, was his brother's widow, and that didn't seem like an official wife to her but he admired she admired him for that and um he eventually married ruth's biological sister too but she said that you know besides taking on polygamy when he really didn't have the means to do so they were living in lehigh then the church leaders asked him to go settle further south and she wrote in her diary that she was just distraught because she knew he would do it because he was such a faithful man and they and they just couldn't you know she just thought they didn't have the means to do it in fact she had told him she could wait to get married for another year until he kind of got on his feet better but he didn't want to do that yeah so just after they take off to go settle south when they stay overnight at her parents house he he tell he comes out and tells her it breaks her heart that do you think your parents would let you stay here? And he went on with his first wife, his brother's widow, and and she was waiting every day looking in the mail for a letter from him that it was time to come down and join them. And it was a year. And, yeah, and even after that, they had a hard time making ends meet. So, yeah, while we say that it was a way for women to find a family and to be cared for, over and over again, these polygamous wives mostly cared for themselves. They had some support from their husbands, maybe by um, helping them with the house or helping them with some land. Sometimes not at all. Sometimes they had to get a house from their father, for example. And over and over and over, they care for themselves and mostly, um, and, and for their children sometimes too. So they are mostly working quite hard themselves. So tell me one of the reasons I started this series anyway is because polygamy used to bring me such deep pain and conflict as a Mormon woman. It just, I was, I had such fear 
that uh, I would practice it someday. And I really, it made me feel pressure in my own marriage that if I'm not perfect in all of these different ways, that someday my husband could find someone to replace me. Like that was my very limited understanding of this. And, um, I had, of course, I had always grown up hearing these heroic stories about polygamy. And then as I started to research, I found out it wasn't that way. I had found out in my husband's family, one of one sister wife had broken the arm of another sister wife as they were fighting over property. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like, wait a minute, that's so different than I thought. So I, now I've seen this struggle between this discontent in the home and some women that really, really got along. So what I want to ask you first is, can you tell me maybe your favorite story of wives that got along the best and where this, this, uh, dynamic really worked for them and benefited them? Uh, and by the way, um, when I first started this project as a graduate student, that was my initial goal was to see if, if these women were feminists, like the political feminists that we know and from early Utah days. And I was so surprised to find out that, um, they mostly cared about their relationships with their husbands more than they cared about their relationship with the other wives. Although they treated for the most part, I didn't have anyone breaking someone else's arm. For example, for the most part, they tried to be respectful or teach, treat the other wives like they would another woman at release society, but they weren't good friends. Um, yeah, I love your term multiple monogamies. I love that. Yeah. Uh, yes, exactly. And uh, the best story probably is Martha Cox. You alluded to her a minute ago. Um, she was discouraged by her family and by her friends to become a polygamous wife. This was in St. George. And by the way, not everyone during those years was really behind the idea of polygamy. And there became more and more opposition to polygamy. But uh, Martha Cox um, uh, decided... Um, that she wanted to join this polygamous family, and it was a poor family, um, the Cox family, but she loved the other wife. She loved the first wife, she loved the second wife, and she wanted to become the third wife. And they did live together until they were forced apart by federal um, marshals and, and investigators. They lived together in a wonderful portrait of harmony, and they seemed to like each other better. The three of them seemed so close. They liked each other better than the husband, it seemed. And they had a regular time when they all woke up. They had regular chores that they would, um, you know, trade off with um, taking care of the home. Her, the other, and she's the only person if I recall correctly, she's the only wife of 29 who called the other women sister wives. And she's, she even tells how um, she started teaching school and had so much trouble getting authorization to teach school. And they wouldn't let her teach it on in a regular building. And so her sister wives help her set up a building, um, an unfinished room in their house. And they created a chalkboard for her and just totally backed her up, watched her children. Um, yeah, and they, they. She said that um, their gravy and potatoes tasted like manna to them during those years when they got along so well. The children were happy; they were happy, even though they didn't have very much. Yeah, and you know what that made me in my own life think about was when I, you know, married into my family, and I was really young, and I really wanted to be 
trained in the domestic arts, but I wasn't that great. And my family, my in-laws are from Idaho. And so I, I remember with fondness learning to grind wheat and make, you know, rolls from scratch. And, and I really related to that in the story where she learns a lot of this, these domestic arts from her sister wives. It was kind of this training that she got. Even discipline, um, of herself. It, um, she was um, just around 20 years old when she got married and the family had a definite bedtime and a definite time when they got up and she found it really difficult at first to get up at the time when the family got up but she learned like not to complain she learned to fall into their routine and it just suited her really well over the years so tell me about the stories in all of this finding what was probably the hardest one to research, the hardest story where polygamy was just such a struggle for the family or for the individual? Um, the, the very last story of the book is fascinating. It's the story of Annie Day. And it's just the story of a girl who fell through the cracks somehow. Um, she was only 14 when her mother approved of her being sealed in the St. George Temple to her stepfather. So essentially her mother's husband, who was in his 40s and she was 14 years old, he did not have sex with her um, for a few years. Her mother had insisted on that. And in fact, she got when she was about 16, she got upset with her mother and said that she wanted to have children. And her mother said, I'm not done having children yet. But it was just... It turned, I mean, she had, she divorced him and eventually married a bachelor and became a monogamous wife. But she had three children with her stepfather in the meantime. And I, I don't know. I mean, they tried to get married in the St. George Temple and somebody stopped them because they didn't think it was right that a girl should be marrying her stepfather. So they sent a note to Salt Lake and it's unclear because it was during John Taylor's period, it's unclear if he was in hiding or somebody else sent back a note that they could go ahead, but it was just an awkward, awkward situation. (laughs) And she lived with him out on a farm. She worked very, very hard. He obviously liked her a lot, but her story's just great because she talks about a voice that she heard, and I would interpret it to be some form of the Holy Ghost that came to her and said, you are away from Mr. Chestnut and because she'd been praying and praying about how to get out of this terrible situation. And even um, the home teachers from the church were wanting her to get out of the situation and trying to encourage her. Um, anyway, she had this experience where she heard a voice saying, you're away from Mr. Chestnut. Now this is a warning to you. Take it. And she ran to her friend's house and, I, I mean, it's more complicated than that, but it's a pretty fascinating story about how a girl could, um, uh, you know, from a sort of very isolated rural part of Utah, um, somehow get stuck in polygamy. She claims that she didn't even really realize she was being sealed to him. So it's one of the most uncomfortable ones, but fascinating because of the way she writes. It's she tells lots of details that are really interesting. And that's, that's another thing that I appreciate about, appreciate about this book is you really go to their words and let them tell the story to us, which is, which I think is fantastic and bring their voices to life, even if it is, you know, their struggles. And 
one of my themes running through all of this is growing up hearing the perfect pioneer narrative, it really put me at odds with the leadership because I felt so broken and I felt so imperfect. And I thought I, you know, was distances away from these great leaders. And so once I started learning that they struggled and that they were imperfect, it was so liberating to me to, mm-hmm. to know that that's the human struggle that we all, that we all live through. And so I, I love the good as much as I love the bad. I think that they can both be helpful to us. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me, tell me just your overall takeaway from, from writing this book. Did you, did you feel discouraged about the practice? Did you feel empowered by these women's stories? That's kind of a leading question. Tell me, just tell me how you felt writing this book. Um, I think I was both fascinated by the these women of the West, and I also had a puzzle I wanted to figure out, and you alluded it, to it earlier when you were saying when you grew up, um, you were afraid that you would have to live polygamy one day. For me, um, growing up as a teenager in California, I somehow had the impression that I would be living polygamy in the next life. And even uh, recently, I asked my mom, and I write about this in the at the end of the book, my mom said that she believes she'll be living polygamy in the next life and said that um, she used to get absolutely panicked over it, but now she just figures that, you know, everything will turn out for the best. Um, but... Uh, I think I wanted to figure out the puzzle and figure out what this was and met, what it meant to women, what role they really played in it. Were they oppressed? Were, was it a good thing for them? What, you know, all of those questions. Um, for myself, after studying all of their, stu- uh, their stories, I feel, uh, I mean, to me, there's two possibilities that Joseph Smith made some kind of mistake, you know, and we kind of finally worked it out of the system. Another possibility is that in order to really make an early religion stick, um, you, you maybe need something difficult like this that forces people to fire up in their religion, they're in or they're out. They, the, Children who were born into polygamous families were mostly born into families of leaders of the church. Therefore, they became quite devout. Um, even today, as a teacher, it's interesting to me because I, I live in um, Utah County. It's interesting to me uh, to see that many of my students' last names are in the book that I wrote, you know, and I'm not saying like I haven't traced them back, but you know, it was just, it was foundational to who we are. And I guess as women, our takeaway can be both caution (laughs) because uh, you could be taken advantage of. And on the other hand, uh, pride that we could, um, make a difference in laying down the foundation of the church. And I guess that's the way that I prefer to see it. I have always felt like ever since I read these women's stories that I'd like to rescue them from the cracks of history and let um, let people find out what kind of sacrifices they made, and mostly willingly. And they believe they were setting a foundation for the church, and I think there is a way to read it that way. 
Yeah, there's that there's that famous quote from Brigham Young where he basically says, listen, if we're not living in a way that people on the outside are pointing at us saying that we're strange and peculiar, then we're doing it wrong. And I think that that is a theme running through Mormonism. And, and it's sort of this weird tension we see now, you know, where we're trying to fit in and are we evangelical now or are we still peculiar? How do, how do we make that work in the modern age where this was something that I agree with you that it really set them apart. It really solidified them. And in a way, I mean, for all of its, its faults and the abuses, Polygamy absolutely redefined the social network and the social structure and the community in the way that Mormons have relationships with one another. And I think that we can't underestimate the impact that that has on setting us apart from different faiths. We, we definitely have a different relationship structure that I think we still have remnants of today. Oh, that's a great insight. I like that. Well, and in, in, in the wife's stories, they sometimes write, they were discouraged at times, you know, sometimes. And when you ask me about discouragement, yes, they had times of discouragement. They also had times where um, they were happy because they loved their children. They loved their husbands in many, many cases. They couldn't get enough of their husbands. They often didn't get enough resources from their husbands. But they, for the most part, they still love their husbands. But when, and, and that's another thing I learned is that I could identify with. They had some deep prayers and some deep blessings. And some of them felt that God was their best friend and they went to God for comfort and for help. And they also sometimes wrote about going to Relief Society and being affected by, um, a testimony by another sister who talked about the discouragements that she had had and how she wants to remain faithful. And it's the same kind of thing we do today, like you pointed out, encouraging each other and helping each other through our low points, I guess. Yeah, I, um, I've been thinking a lot about this exact topic since I've done this podcast because I used to think polygamy is one of those things we did once and we don't do it anymore. But in studying it, you really see how it affects us today. And I've, I've, I think if you wanted to, I don't know that I believe this, but you could make this argument that polygamy is still being practiced in our hearts in this way with the remnants of how we make covenants to one another as a people and, and things like that. And so I think that that could be an, a beautiful interpretation of it. I do think the caution is these, these, tales of woe and women falling through the cracks and women being neglected and abused and men. I mean, this wasn't an easy practice for men as well. Like the man in Santa Clara who, you know, he said it was a trial all of his life that you wrote about. So I, I think that that's, what's really messy about it. But the one thing I do know is that we as Mormons cannot eradicate or we cannot erase this part of ourselves. It's so much a part of Brighamite Mormonism, I don't know that we're ever going to be able to exercise the ghosts of the past. Oh, I really like the way you have thought about that whole picture and how it affects us today. Uh, I mean, one one sad way that I hope we can get over is that, you know, what you alluded to earlier about feeling like it affects your marriage today. Um, I think there are still women, and I've read some blogs, you know, of young married wives who 
are worried that someday they're going to have to share their husbands or their husband might like another wife better or something like that. And I think that is kind of a violation of what we're about today. I think we need to move on as far, uh, you know, doctrinally. And that's why I prefer to see it as even though it was possibly, um, you know, it was religiously based. It was possibly a way to put down roots as a new religion. I sort of prefer, prefer to see those practical effects, you know, like to raise up a righteous seed. Okay, we did it. We're here to stay. And usually, um, you know, it says, like it says in the Book of Mormon in Jacob too, as I referred to earlier, usually, um, it breaks women's hearts to be involved in something like this. And it's not a normal state of being, at least that's the message I get. Yeah. And, and that's my concern about it is that to develop the kingdom of God, I would hate to have it be on the backs of women, you know, like that, the women have to carry and shoulder the burden and the pain and the sacrifice just for the practice. And I don't, that, that is probably maybe, an extreme reading of it. But I do think that that, that is a valid piece for those that feel that way as well. I, all I know is I was in such pain about it. And the only thing that relieved my pain was diving into it, diving into the study and into the practice. And I really think the only way through it is through it. You have to research it till you can come to your own piece and your own conclusion. And I really think the history has has that balm for us, wherever it may be. Yes, I feel the same way. Uh, yes, I feel, I feel pretty good about it now. <laughs> you know, I feel okay about it in the 19th century, and partly because I have a lot of respect from these of the for these women. I don't feel like they necessarily wanted to be pitied. I was surprised at how many of them wrote their true feelings. And I think it's partly because they wanted their descendants. They never expected to be read beyond that, right? They wanted their descendants to know what they had given up, what they had experienced, what they had sacrificed for the, you know, to establish what they believed was the kingdom of God. So you you said this earlier, but do you think these women were oppressed? Uh, I'm looking down my list of women. You know, it was, I would have to probably know more than I know now about ordinary rural Western women. I have, from what I do know, I feel like um, there are a lot of monogamous marriages that are difficult. Settling the rural West was difficult. So on top of that, if you add polygamy, I did write one chapter about three women who seemed um, like I'm, I'm, I'm interpreting, okay, and I'm reading between the lines as I'm trained to do, uh, but... You, through their writings, you kind of feel them asking because they kind of got physically sick from the whole thing. So you kind of feel them asking, is it really right that I should give up my primary joy in life for this principle of the gospel? Um, do I really need to sacrifice my husband and my family 
for God, you know. And so at a, at a certain point, I put this um, quote in there from the Old Testament um, from Isaiah about um, how God said, I am tired, I am sick of your sacrifices, I'm tired of the lambs, I'm tired of this, I'm tired. And I think it got to that point, you know, where I don't need your sacrifices anymore, this is too too much. So I guess I'd have to say it was on an individual basis and that um, women of this period worked really hard anyway, but there were times when they were just overlooked a few too many times and had to make a few too many sacrifices. And I'm saying the we in general, and I don't mean to say it that way because there were some women who maybe, um, yes, were probably... Um, you could consider oppressed. Yeah, and that's that was my take about it too, is it's so individual. And, you know, I would say that it was very oppressive to some men as well. I mean, they really felt this burden with this, this sort of 19th century or 19th century expectations on them already. And then you have this priesthood expectation gifted upon you too. And and some men, it was just not in their nature. It was just not in their personality. And so I can see that, that it was really a refiner's fire for a lot of, a lot, like the whole people. And yet out of, out of anything that can be hard and terrible, there can also be these beautiful things. You have these really great connections with some of the children, you know, these family bonds and having more adults in their life to maybe diversify their worldview and the way of doing things. And so, yeah, I, I always caution the listeners to refrain from coming up with one, one takeaway from this. I think it's all just another piece in a very, very big puzzle. And I don't know that we're ever going to understand the whole picture of the puzzle. Yes, and I, I have an a, additional caution, and that is that I have more and more realized that I've examined closely their autobiographies and diaries, and that is only a piece, because these women might not want to be completely defined by what they wrote privately in their journals. Do you know what I mean? Oh, that's a really interesting thought. Yeah, <laughs> just uh, thinking mean, about I'm, myself, absolutely, that's the case for me. I'm reporting what they wrote in their private moments and some of them about half of them wrote autobiographies that they probably assumed would be read by their descendants but you know about half of them wrote diaries and maybe didn't know if their diaries would last they seemed to be working things out in their diaries as we all do so <laughs> yes it's a very big it's a very big puzzle and this is part of it yeah, and, and that's the other thing. I think the shame that I felt, the, that worry and that fear about, you know, living it kept me from digging in. And, and I think that we see this in the church a lot. You know, a lot of these women aren't talked about. We don't talk about the wives of Joseph Smith. Even at the Beehive House, it was a strange thing. Jeffrey Johnson and I have talked about how the script is really off of the Beehive House. We try to represent it as Brigham and his wife, Lucy, and that was it. And I think it's because Mormons have this deep shame that we've carried from Missouri even, you know, this deep shame of being Mormon and kind of like pearls before swine and that kind of thing. And now it's morphed into something even different. But I feel like the only cure to all of this is to talk and research and find out. And the shame um, that you sometimes feel in your own private life when writing about things or your frustrations. I also think that it also erases 
pride that these women felt. And I know that many of them felt pride that they did this, that they were part of something bigger than themselves. And, and we can't erase that either. Yeah, that's right. And, and of course, reading the diaries and autobiographies, I had many clues about what their more public life was like and who their friends were and, um, you know, their standing in the community and their pride or shame and who they were and their situation. And, um, you know, anyway, yeah, they, there, some of them were impoverished, some of them were fine, some of them had leisure time and had people working for them, and others did a lot of their work um, with their children. And yeah, it's just, it's not just one story. Well, I, again, I hate to be completely creepy about it, but I just really appreciate the book. I'm so excited. I'm going to urge everyone again to go out there and buy a copy of this. And Paula, I would love for you, anytime you have something you want to say about the subject, to come back on because I just, I think that your book has really contributed to a really meaningful and needed and healing conversation to Mormon women. And so I really appreciate it. Oh, great. Thank you so much for your support. And I'm glad you enjoyed reading the book. And I hope more people will read it to get, like you said, a more complete understanding of an important period in our past for women. So is there anything else before we go that you want to tell us that you're working on or any projects that you have coming up? For any women who might be near Idaho Falls on October 18th, that's a Saturday afternoon um, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I'll be uh, presenting, representing the Reader's Theater that I did at the Mormon History Association in San Antonio in June. And that's me narrating and four women who will play the voices reading from the writings of four polygamous wives. And it's called Running from the Law, Four Polygamous Wives on the 1880s and 1890s Underground. And that was a very interesting period of time as well that we're not very well informed about. And all of the trouble that those women had to go through if they were second, third, fourth wives to run to leave home and and hide so i would love to see anyone there for that who might be available oh i love that yeah we'll definitely promote that and you can give me more information and i can post about it when it gets it gets sooner and i would love a recording of that if you would ever share one for the podcast that would be that'd be amazing so you can think about that later you don't commit to that now Okay. Um, I forgot. (laughs) Like, I didn't say where it's going to be, but that's okay if I could, because I don't have it right in front of me. It's like at a steak center in the afternoon, but I think it's sponsored by Sons of Utah Pioneers. But the whole theme of the afternoon is about um, women's, pioneer women's history. So, yeah, I'll forward you the information and that'd be great if you would post it because anyone who's interested in this topic, I think they might like the whole afternoon, but the, um, the reader's theater turned out well and I had slides of the women and so forth. And so it's pretty entertaining. It's about 40 minutes long. That's great. Yeah. I, I would encourage everyone to go to that. I think that's perfect. And probably a lot of our listeners in the area will make it to that. So, okay. Yeah. Thanks. Well, thanks again for coming on and thank you everyone for listening to the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast.